morning, Bethel. If you would turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 19, we're going to read a few verses from chapter 19 and also chapter 21 for our scripture reading this morning. Um, While you're turning there, uh, if you don't have a Bible, by the way, there's one in the pew in front of you, and you can grab that and turn to page 1039 um, for Revelation 19. But while you're turning there, um, I just want to point out, we've said this in the past, but we haven't said it for a while, maybe explicitly, that there's an intentional um, ordering to the songs, and um, Beryl and the team work so hard to to lead us to the throne of grace each week. And so we have this great God. He's almighty. And yet, all of our trouble and all of our brokenness and bondage has come in as a result of turning away from Him and looking for strength and whatever we feel like we need everywhere but Him. And so He's not just a great God, thankfully. He's also a great Savior, and He sent Jesus so that we could be brought out of our bondage. And so... We're actually singing, we're walking through the gospel, we're reminding ourselves of the gospel, we're singing the pattern of the gospel, this great God that we have turned away from, we've fallen short of his glory, and because of Jesus we can come. Isn't that great that we can come, that we can continue to find the freedom that we need because we, we wander from the gospel on a weekly basis, that's why we need recalibrated and we need to get back in rhythm as we gather each week. And then when we get recalibrated, when we're reminded of the gospel, we can't help but glory in our Redeemer. That's right, Barry. And when we glory in our Redeemer, don't you want other people to know the freedom that you've experienced in Christ? And so hear our praises, and we we, we want to hear our praises echoed in the lives of other people who are now, through our witness, singing the same song with us. So I hope that you notice some of that intentionality and realize, you know what? You get out of step through the week, Saturday, you go, okay, I know I'm going I'm to just hear the rhythm. And Lord, would you just bring me back in line? We can anticipate this time together. Obviously, the Lord can bring us back in line day in and day out, moment by moment. But This is a good time to do it together. And then when we meet for home groups, we can encourage each other and help each other as well. So, Revelation 19, if you wouldn't mind, please stand in honor of God's word as we listen to what our God, our great almighty God and Savior has to say to us. Revelation 19, 1 to 9, and then flip a page and we'll read the first five verses of chapter 21. And then um, I'll have you be seated Before we pray, after this, I heard what seemed to be the the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are just and true. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen. Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, 
Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Now, chapter 21, verses 1 to 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away and he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Amen that they're trustworthy and true? This is God's word. You may be seated. Okay, so we are going to attempt to look through Isaiah 24 and 25 this morning, so a fair amount of ground to cover. Um, So a brief little thought as by way of introduction, um, Isaiah 40, pretty well-known passage, Isaiah 40, 28 to 31, those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. Do you know what it means to wait on the Lord? Have you ever wrestled with what it means to wait on the Lord? Does it ever seem to you to be too passive? What does that mean? Just sit on my hands, like wait for some, you know, a job to just fall out of the sky or, you know, whatever it is. Well, you've got to do something. Have you ever wrestled with that concept? Anybody? Well, thank you. Four people. That's good. <laughs> at, least, at least they have... No, there's more hands than that. But, um, well, I hope that by the end of the sermon, if you haven't wrestled with it, you will. <laughs> and that those of us who have, that it really would... In a sense, we'd have a new appreciation for what it means and that we would um, really be helped to do just that. I think it's incredibly important to know what that means and to actually do it. So may God help us um, as we study his word together. All right, we're going to dive in here. There's an outline in the bulletin. There's also um, the points that will be up on the screen here, I think. Um, so first point. Chapter 24, since everything will be destroyed in this way. So we're, we're going through this series on Isaiah. Um, the series title is God Saves. 
because that's what Isaiah is all about. God saves. In fact, Isaiah's name means the Lord saves. And chapters 1 to 12, the first big chunk, is all about God revealing his saving and judging, judging and saving intentions for Judah and Israel, okay, the people of God at that time. Then in the second major chunk, 13 to 27, chapters 13 to 27, God reveals his saving, his judging and saving intentions for the nations, for the whole world. Okay, so that's kind of the big picture. And if you've been here in, in previous weeks, there's all this judgment in, verse, in chapters 13 to 20 and even 21 to 23. And there's specific nations in history that, that are mentioned. Okay, and now in chapters 24 to 27, the judgment and salvation of the whole world, kind of at the end of history, this is the climax of that section because 13 to 27 is all about the Lord, Yahweh, being the Lord over all the nations. Okay, so when you get to 24 to 27, the individual nations kind of fade to the background, and there's this final climactic vision of two cities, the city of man and the city of God. Okay, so let's look together at chapter 24. This is how it all ends. 24.1, behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate, and he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. Think back to uh, Genesis 1. What was God's original intention? He wanted the earth to be filled by his image bearers. They were supposed to reflect his character, reflect his rule and reign, his wise, benevolent rule and reign. And he provided for them and he blessed them so that they would be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with his glory, right? But the fall comes in, and what ends up filling the earth? Sin, idols, injustice, violence. Okay, Isaiah 2.8 says, their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. So you can see why the Lord is going to empty the earth. That's why judgment involves emptying. So that one day... Isaiah 11.9 will finally come true. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So the judgment that's coming will be with perfect equity and justice. Look at verse 2. And it shall be as with the people, so with the priest, as with the slave, so with his master, as with the maid, so with her mistress, as with the buyer, so with the seller, as with the lender, so with the borrower, as with the creditor, so with the debtor. I read this last night to the kids. Lily said, that could be like a rap. So any of you who are gifted in that way, go ahead and, you know, we can share that with the, uh, the church family. So the point is there's no favoritism in the judgment. God is impartial, no respecter of persons. He doesn't take bribes. He doesn't grade on the curve. There will be nothing but perfect justice for all. Verse 3, the earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered for the Lord has spoken this word. The earth mourns and withers. The world languishes and withers. The highest people of the earth languish. That's the opposite of the flourishing that God originally gave and he intended. Verse 5, the earth lies defiled under its inhabitants. Why? Because they've transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse, 
devours the earth and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are scorched and few men are left. I mean, do you hear this language? It's the story of human history. This is the garden on repeat. And the gospel is the only thing that makes human history into anything other than a tragedy, a wretched tragedy. So the earth is defiled because of our sin. There's a curse on the earth. It's a devouring curse. The earth's inhabitants will suffer for their guilt. The fires of judgment will come and scorch the earth, and few will be left. So rather than be fruitful and multiply, there's going to be judgment and there's going to be few. So this is the opposite of God's creation intention. That's what sin does. Look at what What else is the end game of rebellion against God? Verse 7, the wine mourns, the vine languishes, all the merry-hearted sigh. The mirth of the tambourines is stilled. The noise of the jubilant has ceased. The mirth of the lyre is stilled. No more do they drink wine with singing. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. So here's the point. At the end, the partying, the songs of the city of man will be be stilled. The wine's going to dry up. The noise of the world's Mardi Gras will die down. Look at verse 10. The wasted city. That's not wasted in the sense of being drunk. Okay? It's the desolate city. is broken down. Every house is shut up so that none can enter. This is actually the center. This is the sum of chapter 24. So, again, like I said, no longer is it a list of specific places like Babylon, Assyria, Egypt, etc. Okay? This is the wasted city the city of man. You know where that term wasted first shows up in the Bible? Genesis 1-2. You don't have to turn there, but the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So Here's the point. Sin results in the undoing of God's good creation purposes. So what did God do at the beginning? By His Spirit, He speaks these omnipotently powerful words, and by His Spirit, He takes what's formless and void, empty, and He orders it and He fills it. But sin comes in and it leads to chaos and emptiness. No wonder it's going to be judged. No wonder it's going to be dealt with. Sin is like a parasite that's got to be destroyed. So in effect, what sin does and what God's judgment on it does is it's like decreation. Listen to Augustine, the early church father. This is the way he talked about the city of man. In fact, he wrote the book, The City of God, which is about the city of man and the city of God, after Rome was sacked by the Goths. I mean, he lived through it. He said, you are surprised that the world is losing its grip, that the world has grown old. Think of a man. He is born, he grows up, he, come, he becomes old. Old age has many complaints, coughing, shaking, failing eyesight, anxious, terribly tired. A man grows old, he's full of complaints. The world is old. It is full of pressing tribulations. Do not hold on to the old man, the world. Do not refuse to regain your youth in Christ who says to you, the world is passing away. The world is losing its grip. The world is short of breath. Do not fear. Your youth shall be renewed as an eagle. Now, let me just insert some hope here really quickly. This is so cool. I found myself praying along these lines a lot in the last six months, year. 
one of the most glorious things about the gospel is that the Spirit is recreating the world already, making things new. How does He do it? He starts in the little worlds of our hearts, which are, by nature, chaotic and empty. That's why we're trying to fill them with all the wrong kind of stuff, and we make a mess of it. So God comes in by the power of the gospel, by His Spirit, and He orders the chaos, and He fills the emptiness. Isn't that great? Just like the Spirit did at the beginning. But this is still kind of the bad news of how it's all going to end in chapter 24. So look at verse 11. There's an outcry in the streets for lack of wine. All joy has grown dark. The gladness of the earth is banished. Desolation is left in the city. The gates are battered into ruins. For thus it shall be in the midst of the earth among the nations, as when an olive tree is beaten, as at the gleaning when the grape harvest is done. There's nothing left. So, folks, we've got to see. This is poetic. There's a lot of pictures, which is good. We're visual learners, right? So we should actually appreciate the the weirdness in all the pictures in Isaiah rather than think, I have no clue what that's talking about. Okay, so we need to see that this is what sin does. Like, do you believe that down to your bones? This, This story is our story. We're living in this story. Because this is the end. So do you believe that down to your bones that that is the result of sin? Languishing rather than flourishing. Because you know what? We get the oldest bill of goods thrown our way all the time. God made things good, good, very good. And the only thing God prohibited in the garden, not this tree, is I don't want you to die. And for us, the only thing he prohibits, the only boundaries he puts up, is the stuff that's going to kill us. And Satan loves to say, just like he said in the garden, oh, you, won't, you surely won't die. In fact, in fact, you know, the Lord's holding out on you. He's a killjoy. You won't die. It's your joy that'll die. Don't Believe it. Listen to Isaiah 24. Look at the end game of all sin and rebellion and those who buy those primeval lies that continue. They just get repackaged generation after generation. Look at the end game here. Verse 19, the earth is utterly broken, split apart, violently shaken. The earth staggers like a drunken man. It sways like a hut. Its transgression lies heavy upon it, and it falls, and it will not rise again. On that day, the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth on the earth. They will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They will be shut up in a prison. After many days, they will be punished. That's reality for all who listen to the serpent and his lies. You can see the serpent's future destination, and he wants to bring as many with him, bring as many people down as possible. So don't let him blind you. God is showing us the end game. 2410 Central, the wasted city is broken down. So, don't buy the lies. The city of man, the pleasures of this world can seem so real, so solid, so enduring, but it's all passing away. And it'll all be judged and brought down and shown for what it is. It's smoke and mirrors. It's the little guy behind the curtain in the Wizard of Oz. So, 
Again, it's a call, just like we've heard over and over again in Isaiah, don't put your trust in man, don't trust in the city of man, don't proudly trust in yourself or even the best that mankind can do. It's like trying to settle down in a condemned house. No, we've been called out, out of my bondage. You know that song? Just like Abraham, just like the Egyptians. I'm sorry, not the Egyptians, the Israelites out of Egypt. We've been called out, called out to live like Christian pilgrims in route to our true home, the city of God. So in the midst of this broken down, collapsing city, the wasted city, like verse 10 says, there's actually a song in the broken down city of man, and there's oftentimes revelry and partying. It can seem like, man, they're having all the fun and we're not. But again, it's all a lie. It's short-lived. It'll one day fall silent. In the midst of the mourning and crying and pain of this broken world, there's also a, another song that's rising. It's what we were singing this morning. It comes from a happy band of Christian pilgrims who are headed home. So let's look at this song that's rising in verses 14 to the beginning of 16. Listen, they lift up their voices. They sing for joy over, what are they singing about? The majesty of the Lord. They shout from the west. This is like happening all over the earth. Like, Maybe the glory of the Lord is going to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Therefore, in the east, the west, the east, give glory to the Lord. In the coastlands of the sea, give glory to the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. From the ends of the earth, we hear, what's that we hear? Songs of praise, of glory to the righteous one. So the song of the redeemed is starting to rise all over the earth. Now, Isaiah is realistic. He knows that en route to the city of God, we are often struggling with the suffering and brokenness around us and the suffering and brokenness within us, the injustice around us that's perpetrated against us, which is why he goes on to say, without a break, but I say, I waste away, I waste away, woe is me, for the traitors have betrayed. With betrayal, the traitors have betrayed, verse 16. Okay? But there is a song that has begun, and it will only go stronger until it drowns out all the dissonance and the discord. It's the song of the redeemed. Okay? So it's the song of those who have been rescued from slavery to sin. The mirages of sin have been... I mean, has this happened enough for us yet that those mirages broke? We landed in the, the sand, mouthful of sand. How many times does that have to happen before you realize, okay, this world is not home. Jesus is the only real Savior. He's the only real satisfaction for my soul. So that's what a Christian is. They have their eyes open to see that this world is not going to satisfy them. It's all smoke and mirrors. It's mirages. It's a lie. And, and we see that we are the problem in here, our rebellion, the bondage is inside, not just outside of us. And Jesus is the bondage breaker. He can free us. And so we've stopped trusting in ourselves. We start trusting in him. And he actually underwent that ultimate languishing curse, the condemnation that we deserve. He died in our place for our sins on the cross so that we could be blessed and redeemed out of that condemned house and given citizenship in heaven. So this new song rises from our hearts. We're praising our wonderful Redeemer. So the new song sounds something like this. 
Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign on the earth. So we've tasted, right, and seen that the Lord is good. We've experienced the truth of Jesus' words when he said, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never, ever hunger Whoever believes in me will never, ever thirst. So I hope that we've all come to Jesus like that. And so we then experience foretastes of the feast that is to come. All the grace of God, the little mini deliverances that he gives us in this life, they're like appetizers all along the pilgrim way. And those appetizers, the grace that we taste and experience along the way as we walk home to the city of God, they say, hang in there. Wait for it. I mean, that's what the Lord's table is. You can view it that way. It's like an appetizer. There's a feast coming. Wait for it. So chapter 24 is this sad story of the end of human history. It all just winds down and just dries up, languishes, broken. The gospel is the only thing that makes human history into something hopeful. It's the only enduring cause for joy, reason to sing. And while we walk the pilgrim road, even though our song is oftentimes tempered by grief, like Isaiah's was, how can we not rejoice? Like Paul, we can be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, if this is true for us. And then one day, even though it's tempered, with grief in this life, one day that song is rising and will no longer be accompanied by any dampering, tempering grief at all. It'll be fullness of joy and pleasure evermore because the foretaste and the appetizers will give way to the full feast and we will sing. So let's look at the song of the redeemed in the beginning of chapter 25, verses 1 to 5. O Lord, you are my God, I will exalt you. I will praise your name for you have done wonderful things. Plans formed of old. Okay, the Lord has been in control all along. He knows the end from the beginning. These plans were formed of old. He's never doing plan B. The cross is plan A. Your life, he's in control. He wasn't asleep at the switch. Ever. Plans formed of old, faithful and sure. This phrase is really powerful. It just speaks of quintessential faithfulness, like every imaginable faithfulness. Just praising God for his faithfulness. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin, which we just read in chapter 24. He kind of summarizes it here. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. So this is the end of all self-glory, all self-salvation projects, the, the boastful pride of life. It's just going to be done away with. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm, a shade from the heat, for the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against the wall, like heat in a dry place. So he judges the strong oppressors. He rescues the weak. You subdue the noise of the foreigners. 
their song, their revelry is going to be silenced as heat by the shade of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is put down. Their song will die out. Ours will only grow in strength. And then comes the feast. Point number four, and it's actually verses six to eight in, in the bulletin I messed up. It's, it says six to nine, but it's six to eight. And then point five is verse nine. So let's look at this feast. Look at verse six, 25, six. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. A couple things we need to notice here. Do you see how this feast is both inclusive and exclusive? Wonderfully inclusive and yet clearly exclusive. So first, the inclusiveness of the feast. Who's it for? It's for all peoples. Who's invited? Well, if you speed ahead to Isaiah 55, you hear something like this. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. So the inclusiveness of the feast, this is for all peoples, all kinds of people and all peoples over the whole face of the earth. And yet also, there is an exclusiveness to this feast because it's on this mountain and nowhere else. It comes only through Christ, ultimately. So Jesus said, he said, come to me, all you're weary and heavy laden. He said, you know, I'm the bread of life. Whoever, whoever comes to me will never, ever hunger. But then he also said, um, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So inclusive and exclusive. How much does it cost for a plate at this feast? <laughs> well, have you ever heard of like great banquets where, or, or fundraisers, you know, where the cost per plate is like off the hook expensive? Well, you definitely can't afford this, like a plate, a seat at this feast. But don't worry, Jesus paid the cost. But here's the sad thing. This is like the best feast ever. The best place with the best company, with the best menu. And Jesus laid down his infinitely precious, valuable life to purchase seats at this table. And guess what? Some people who get invited, you know what they do? They yawn. Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. It's not hard to connect the dots. And sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm another to his business. Well, just again, this is what the text says. There's another meal 
waiting for those who proudly reject God's invitation. It's in verses 10 to 12. It's repulsive and disgusting, and it's supposed to be. So the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, okay? He's going to rest his hand of blessing and peace on this mountain where the feast is, but Moab, and Moab's used as an example here of a proud nation that sets itself up against God. Moab shall be trampled down in his place as straw is trampled down in a dung hill. Here is a word picture for you folks. And Moab will spread out his hands in the midst of it. Where's that? In the dung hill. Oh, I'm going to get out because I'm strong. No, actually, the Lord's going to lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands. Where's his face in the dung hill? Those are the options. The feast or this meal. So don't you hunger for the feast of verse 6? I mean, this is the party. Can you imagine the menu on that day? The Lord of hosts is going to make this feast for billions of people throughout history. And that shouldn't be a surprise, although that's crazy to think of. I looked up like greatest feats in history and, you know, oh, there was 600 guests and they had 127 courses and so what? There's going to be billions of people at God's feast. How's he going to do that? How's he going to not burn anything? You know, well, yeah, we shouldn't be surprised because Jesus fed multitude like thousands and thousands with a few loaves and fish. God fed a multitude in the wilderness with quail and manna. And you know what? Come on. God feeds 7 billion people every day, whether they know it or not, the righteous and wicked alike. So this feast, this is fullness of joy, pleasures evermore. This is celebration. Okay, this is no soup kitchen. God's the chef. I, what, I can't wait to know what's on that menu. I can't wait to taste it. Michelin stars. <laughs> okay, if you don't know what Michelin stars are, look it up later. Not now on your iPad. Okay. Um, <clears throat> now, we're not the only ones who will be eating that day. Do you know what's on the menu for God? Do you know what's going to be on the table for God to eat that day? I love this. This is so sweet and glorious. Look at verse 7. And he, the Lord, will swallow up on this mountain the covering that's cast over all peoples. The veil that spread over all nations, he will swallow up death forever. Do you know how good that is? How good, good a news that is? Do you know how pervasive death's threat is? I, I like to read things that Woody Allen says sometimes because he's an honest atheist. Here's what he said about death. I always see death's head lurking. I could be sitting at Madison Square Garden at the most exciting basketball game and they're cheering and everything is thrilling and one of the players is doing something very beautiful and my thought will be, he's only 28 years old and I only wish he could savor this moment in some way because you know this is as good as it's going to get for him. The fundamental thing behind all motivation and all activity is the constant struggle against annihilation and against death. It's absolutely stupefying in its terror and it renders anyone's accomplishments meaningless. As Camus wrote, it's not only that he dies and that man or that man dies, 
but that you struggle to do a work of art that will last and then realize that the universe itself is not going to exist after a period of time. And until those issues are resolved within each person, religiously or psychologically or existentially, the social and political issues will never be resolved except in a slapdash way. <sighs> Thank you for telling the truth. Don't you wish he could see it? I mean, without Christ, that is reality. And we just, we just dance around in the smoke and mirrors. So many people around you, you ought to not be like, oh, they're so, I don't know. We can just judge the world. We ought to be pitying them. This is where they're headed. This is what, what it looks like for them. And we've got hope. So, so let's bring it closer to home. What do you fear? What's underneath some of your fears? If you were immortal, how many of your fears would be totally removed, like right now? Do you have fears related to running out of time? Probably takes, you have to be maybe at least 40 for this to start to kick in. Fears of losing opportunity, fears of loss and pain and suffering. How about all your health fears, for instance? What's at the root of those? But you know what? There's, I, th I think there's a lot of other, of our, a, lot other <laughs> a lot of other issues, a lot of our issues also relate, maybe not, maybe they're not totally summed up here, but they're certainly connected to fear of death, maybe more than we realized. So just a little thought experiment maybe. Some of you older folks can help me with this one. Why do older folks criticize younger folks? Why are they jealous of younger folks, whether they say it or not? Sometimes even hate and despise them. Is part of it maybe fear of death, hatred of death? This young punk is an idiot and he has so much life in front of him. I wish I did. I'm not a young punk idiot. And I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop. And I hate it. Now, I'm not supposing that that's how you actually think, but I've certainly seen that in some people. Is that ever, whether you would articulate it that way, is that part of some of what's going on there? Imagine, just imagine, imagine if all of that is completely swallowed up. Man, we might sing. Well, Jesus did die and rise again, and he totally conquered death. If, if you believe that, if you get this, if we believe this, then we might start saying crazy stuff like the Apostle Paul, to live as Christ and to die as gain. I'm actually getting closer to life rather than leaving it behind. Oh no, oh no. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And just as he was raised, we will be raised. So Paul quotes this passage in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, when the perishable puts on imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? The only way that that can be true, death can be swallowed up and death loses rather than wins doesn't it seem like the grave always wins? The only way that death doesn't win is if Jesus conquered it. If he's alive, then we have hope. And we do. So we can sing. Even on our deathbed, we can die in faith. 
And we know not only Jesus rose again, so so will we, but we're going to feast. And you know what's going to happen at that feast? Look at the next phrase, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. I wonder how long this is going to take. This is great. Because I bet he's going to do it individually. I don't know how he's going to do it. I'm just saying this is wonderful because he's going to wipe away tears from all of our faces. This is going to be glorious. Have you ever had a moment where you had like unbidden tears kick up? Boom. Whoa, I didn't realize that was in there. Something kicked it up. Well, guess what? I am sure that you have dealt, if you've sought to be honest with yourself and live in community, you know, give grace and receive grace, you have sought to deal with some of the suffering and pain and hurt that you've experienced. But there is a lot of pain and there are scars that we will take with us to the grave, to the end. There is stuff that you have stuffed down and buried. You can, you should deal with as much as possible, but sometimes there are things that you actually can't totally work out because you know what? The offending parties, they either will not work it out with you, they're unwilling, or they're not around to even work it out. And here... The Lord God, your Father, King of the universe, shepherd, he, the pain and sorrow of it all is going to be purged and washed away. He's going to wipe away every tear, every tear from every face. And he's going to wipe away the reproach of his people from all um, He's going to wipe away the reproach of his people. He will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. For some of you, reproach, the reproach that you carry could be worse than death. There may be some things that have happened to you or you could imagine some things that could happen to you where you would say, I'd rather die because of the shame and the reproach that would be on you, the defilement. So if you've been abused, if you've been deeply rejected, ever felt like you never measured up, felt like you don't fit or belong, maybe it's precisely because of your your Christian faith you were mocked and insulted and persecuted, marginalized. No more reproach. Only honor and welcome and belonging. It's not going to just get swept under the rug. It's going to be wiped away. So our celebrations on this earth, oh man, there's some sweet ones, but I bet we've all had the experience that we've never been able to totally celebrate. Because you can have a great wedding, but maybe you're not married, or maybe your marriage is a mess. And so you're happy because you love this couple, but, or maybe it's Christmas, which is great, but then there's some loved one who's not there. Imagine a feast where there isn't even a tinge of not belonging or any other counterbalancing trouble or lack or loss or pain or regret. Do you think that feast would be worth waiting for? That's exactly where the text goes, that this is worth the wait. Verse 9. And it will be said on that day, Behold, 
This is our God. We've waited for him. It doesn't say we've worked for him. We earned a place at the table. It doesn't say that. It says we waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We've waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Who's the one that gets the glory here? Even though we get the sweet feast. So listen to this. I mentioned Mardi Gras earlier. I realized this this morning. New Orleans celebrations are a lot like the city of man, you know, kind of made concrete. Those kind of celebrations will cease. Their songs will be stilled. But do you know what Mardi Gras means? Somebody just said it. There you go, Phil. Fat Tuesday in French. Do you know why it's called Fat Tuesday? Because it's the day before Ash Wednesday. And that means the Lenten season. So if you're anticipating a fast, you better just eat Drink and be merry, for tomorrow you die. But what if tomorrow is a feast? Like a feast to end all feasts. Then you'd probably be able to sing even if you had to fast for a period of time. In fact, you'd probably be all the more willing to fast if you were promised a feast tomorrow. So when we believe these promises, we end up saying, if, if we taste and see that the Lord is good, if we believe these promises, if we ingest the appetizers and get our appetite whetted and our taste buds tuned for God and his grace, we're going to say crazy things like, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Or crazy things like, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction, pilgrim path, home, we've left left the city of destruction, city of man. This momentary light affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, they're passing away, but the things that are seen, unseen, are eternal. So verse 9, it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So um, I heard this little clip of a sermon by Matt Chandler. Um, Not long ago, somebody burned some sermon jams, like rap and some sermon quotes um, on the CD. And one of them is from Matt Chandler. And he's talking about the idea of waiting on the Lord. And the way he unpacked it was so helpful. Here's here's kind of what he said in so many words. What do you do when your mind is there, but your heart isn't there yet? When you know it's true, but you don't want what's true. What do you do when there's a gap between your head and your heart? You wait on the Lord. And then he said, It's not easy. You position yourself under the waterfall of grace and you wait while you walk in obedience, one step at a time, one day at a time, asking God to answer, to come through for you, to deliver you, to help you, little mini deliverances. Why? Because they who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. Why? Because Jesus is worth it. 
So what have you been willing to wait for in this life? You know, that new restaurant, you're, you're willing to brave the hour and a half wait, some roller coaster. What about Jesus? What about this feast? Now, the waitings are different for each of us. And this is kind of our final application here at the end. This is, I think this is huge. We need to wrestle with this. The waiting, what that looks like is different for each of us. So, so I was thinking of some of our Mary Campbell friends here. They are waiting for the restoration of their physical bodies in a way that most of us are not waiting. Now, they could get bitter and curse God, or they could wait in hope. And they do, and they're an example to us. Some of you are single, and you're not content. You can get, it's, it's not even a, necessarily a bad thing to be not content, but you can easily start to get resentful and bitter and envious. What does it look like to wait on the Lord? Some of you are in marriages that are not what you wanted. Again, you can run to other things to relieve or hide or mask or drown that pain, or you can wait on the Lord and trust and follow one step in front of the other. Some of you in your work, there's stuff where you've, you've got to wait on the Lord. I, I feel like I need to say this. Some of you in relation to alcohol, okay, I, I'm not speaking to any one person here, but I, I know this is relevant here, okay? If you've dealt with alcoholism in the past, the answer is usually total abstinence, which can be a really hard pill to swallow like for the rest of your life on this earth. And then you look around at other people who are Christians and they seem to be okay to have a drink now and then. And you can be bitter about it. Why can't I? Or you can wait. Guess who's waiting with you? Jesus. until the day when he drinks this wine anew in the kingdom. And there's never again going to be the temptation to run to wine as a substitute savior or refuge or strength. Different waitings for different people. In your sexuality... You may want illicit satisfaction of your sexual desires, whether you're single, whether you're married. Instead of slaking them in the broken cisterns of the world, we need to wait on the Lord so that he will deliver us. That'll renew our strength. It's not going to renew your strength to satisfy that desire. How does blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God get worked out? That's so far out there. They shall see. That's waiting on the Lord in this little moment right here. I'd rather see God. There's a guy that I went to, what, wait, he went to Wheaton after I did. Um, he lives not far from here, and he has same-sex attraction. He's a professor. He has same-sex attraction. He knows that it's wrong. He wrote a book called Washed and Waiting. Alex and Betsy know him. He's washed, and man, it's going to be hard on the pilgrim road, but he's waiting Different waitings, different struggles. Is there something the Lord has called you to give up? You don't want to really give it up. You need to know this feast is coming. 
If you knew the feast is coming, you'd be able to fast. If you think fasting is coming, you are going to want to feast. Wait on the Lord. Is there something that you long for that the Lord hasn't seen fit to give you to answer that prayer? This passage is saying, wait on the Lord. You won't regret it. You won't be disappointed. So let me close with a C.S. Lewis quote, and then we're going to sing, What Wondrous Love Is This? Some say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it. Not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. And of some sinful pleasure, they say, let me have this and I'll take the consequences. Little dreaming how damnation will spread back and and back into their past and contaminate the pleasure of the sin. Both processes begin even before death. The good man's past begins to change so that his forgiven sins and remembered sorrows take on the quality of heaven. The bad man's past already conforms to his badness and is filled only with dreariness. And that is why the blessed will say, we have never lived anywhere except in heaven. And the lost, we were always in hell. And both will speak truly. So we think we'll die or we'll get weaker if we deny ourselves. No, those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings as eagle. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. So this is how we grow in strength and you will never be put to shame. Do you think, do you think any Christian is going to regret their waiting on the day of this feast? Any of it. Let's wait on the Lord, Bethel. It's worth it. And while we wait, while we walk the pilgrim path, let's get singing. And our closing song is a fitting celebration of these themes. Oh God, I pray that you would open our eyes to see the glory that awaits us and help us to taste it so that our appetite is wetted and tuned to what really satisfies. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen.